If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning as we continue uh, working through the Christmas narrative, the Christmas story this Advent season uh, this year. The Christmas season is a good time for us uh, because we've become really familiar with it. We've become familiar with the high points of the Christmas story, like the angels and the shepherds and the nativity. But it's a really good moment for us to stop and slow down. Christmas every year is this invitation for us to deal with the birth and the account of Jesus and what he has come to do. The Christmas story doesn't just call us to remember It calls us to consider and reflect, and it confronts us to believe in what a lot of people think is absurd, that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, impregnated a virgin, and that child was God himself, the king of the universe. We're confronted with this belief that a lot of people think is absurd, but we hold to it dearly. And so this morning, what we're going to do is take a look at the story of Joseph. Joseph is someone that we don't see a lot of in Scripture, uh, but what we do see is powerful, and it's a mark for us to apply to our lives, but then also what Joseph is told by the angel and how that should shape us this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to Matthew 1, 18 through 25, And we're going to see two things this morning. Uh, Today, this is our goal. We're going to see it in two parts. For part one, who Joseph is. Joseph is a righteous man, an obedient man, and then later we'll see that he's a protective man. And then part two, we'll see what Joseph is told, that she will give birth to a son, and you you will name him Jesus, and he will save people from their sins. So let's read the gospel account together, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. I will read this for us, starting in verse 18. It says this, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her. But he did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So what does Scripture tell us about this man, Joseph? There's not a lot. Scholars even have wondered what's happened to Joseph, and it's likely that Joseph died uh, during Jesus' life and ministry. We don't know that. 
but scholars think that that is a possible fate for Joseph because after the birth narrative of Jesus, after Jesus is uh, lost in the temple for some time, we don't see Joseph again. And then when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks at his disciples and says, uh, John, this is now your mother, Mary. Mary, this is your son. Why would Jesus do that if Joseph was still around? So that's why some scholars have wondered if Joseph has passed. We don't know that. But what we do know about the man is profound. And there's something that we should take here from it this morning. Now, last week we talked about the four different gospel accounts. And while they are often very similar, in places they are pretty different. So if you open up the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that it starts off with the genealogy of Jesus, and then it goes to the life of Joseph. In the Gospel of Luke, it talks about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary's account. And so we have two different accounts telling the same story. This shouldn't be cause for us to have concern, but it should tell us that the Gospel writers are trying to tell us something very uh, intentionally. So take, for example, uh, the best day of Jessica's life when she got to marry me. No, it was actually the best day of my life. It was a great day for both of us. But if you put us in two separate rooms and you asked us to give an account of what happened that day, would we tell the same story? Pretty much. I mean, we would get the same story of what happened, the wedding that day. But would our details be exactly right? No. Would our perspectives be different? Yes. Would the story be the same? Yes. Now, much like this, the gospel writers are approaching this in a way because they want us to see something very intentionally. And what I want us to see this morning is the pain that Joseph has to experience. So remember with me, how does Scripture tell us that Mary found out that she was going to be pregnant? An angel appears to her. You remember what angel that is? Gabriel. Gabriel appears to Mary and then to Zechariah and then one other time in the book of Daniel. We don't see a lot of Gabriel, but when we do, it's pretty profound. And what's interesting about this account in Luke with Gabriel and Mary is they have a conversation. He tells her what's going to happen. Mary is able to ask some questions and then probably one of the most profound statements in the Christmas narrative is when Mary says, Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have said. Now, Mary has heard this way, but how does Joseph find out? Look back at what the gospel writer Matthew says. In verse 18, it says, It was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her. What does Joseph know? All he knows is that she's pregnant and he's not the father. Joseph has been engaged or betrothed to Mary, which is a little different than our engagement now. So to be betrothed to Mary means that Joseph has all the legal obligations of being a husband to Mary without the relational intimacy or the joys of marriage that come along with being married. So Joseph is contractually binded to Mary, and it finds out during this time Mary becomes pregnant. And how does Joseph hear? He sees her. Now, can you imagine that conversation with Mary and Joseph the very first time? What what would you even say? How would you even respond to Mary? Mary comes in. I know this sounds crazy, but an angel of the Lord 
appeared to me, and I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, okay, one, like you've insulted me enough, but don't insult my intelligence by telling me that Gabriel came to you. Like, yeah, right, that didn't happen. Just come clean, right? How does Joseph respond, though? Joseph could blow up. Joseph could disgrace her. Joseph could take her to task. Mary's pregnant. The town founds out. Who's the most likely candidate, the town thinks? Probably Joseph. So now Joseph is experiencing some shame. Joseph could come and say, whoa, no, not me. I don't know who did it. And let me divorce her where everyone will know it's not me. But notice what Scripture says about Joseph. What does it say about him? That he's what kind of man? A righteous man. Now, when we think of a righteous person, we tend to think about um, uh, maybe they're a pastor or maybe they're a Sunday school teacher. A righteous person is someone that would um, maybe read their Bible every day, pray daily. And those are, those are good practices of a righteous person. In fact, Scripture the word used for righteousness here is Sadiq, and it clues us into a few things. In Joseph's world, there would be no reputation more honorable than to be called a Sadiq, to be called righteous. Unless you were a priest, which is unusual, priests would be righteous, or unless you were a prophet, which they haven't had one in like the last 400 years. John the Baptist is about to come back on the scene and be the new prophet that proclaims Jesus coming in. So Joseph is not a priest, he's not a prophet, but he is known as being righteous. And he's probably known for being righteous by the way that he lives. He probably practices the Shema daily, a ritual prayer where you would recite the prayer out of Deuteronomy 6. He probably supports his local synagogue, observes the food laws, celebrates the holy days. But notice this about Joseph, that he's a carpenter. So he's a tradesman. He hasn't been chosen to be one of the young Jewish boys that is raised up in the synagogue to be a Pharisee, to be trained in the law. He had to go get a trade. So it's likely that he knows some things, but it's also likely that he's not righteous because he's just ingrained with it like a young boy would be that's grown up in that way. How does Matthew say, how does Matthew define his righteousness? It says, being a righteous man, he what? Doesn't want to disgrace her publicly. How honorable is that? Especially when you've been wronged. Especially when you have been brought to task in a way. The town sees Mary pregnant, you're engaged to her. What's Joseph's response? He's not the father, and he's not going to make a big deal out of it. He's just going to determine to divorce her quietly. 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 11. It talks about this in a way where Paul is encouraging Timothy in this way through the church. He says this, But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Gentleness. Husbands and wives, one of the things that marital intimacy provides is this really wonderful, close, uh, relational um, time together. I mean, you have someone that you can share your thoughts with, someone that 
you share life's struggles with. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. But you know what you also have? You have personal and relational hand grenades that you can just throw into their life. You know things about your spouse that no one else does, and you can use that to cut them. You can use it to throw a knife in it in them and twist it. There are things that your spouse knows about you that no one else does, and they could use it as a weapon against you if they wanted to. How does Joseph respond? Does he use this as a, a weapon to defend himself? No. He responds uh, kindly with uh, gentleness and is known as a righteous man. Church, your righteousness is not just because you uh, practice reading devotionals every day or that you pray every day. Will that help in forming you to a godly life like Paul says to Timothy? Absolutely. These spiritual formations, these, these practices of Scripture and prayer reading, they shape you. But as James will say, it's let your faith be known by your works. What's the work of Joseph here? It's his gentleness. How do you respond with shocking, terrible, abrasive news. We can look at the story of Joseph. Next, we see uh, Joseph is an obedient man. In verse 20, it says this, But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. So two things we need to note. The author is cluing us in early on that Mary's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, but Joseph does not know until the angel appears to him in a dream. He's heard the testimony of Mary. He doesn't believe it. He's going to divorce her quietly. But the angel appears to him in a dream and confirms what Mary has said. So you might be thinking, you know, uh, angel comes to Joseph He's got it together. I wish an angel would often come to me and tell me what's happened. But think about, think about this. You know, what's happened here? Gabriel visited Mary. He had a conversation with Mary. An angel appears to Joseph. It's an unnamed angel. Appears to Joseph in a dream. If I'm Joseph, I'm waking up the next morning thinking, man, did I eat some bad hummus? Like, what was that? How, what happened? I mean, Joseph doesn't get to ask questions. He doesn't get to respond. He's just told what's happened. Now, I want to pause here because stories in Scripture like these have been used by abusive uh, pastors and sometimes abusive church members to somehow wield the power or an authority over you. Maybe you've experienced it by people saying things like this. God has told me that we are supposed to do this. Or God has revealed to me that we are going to go in this direction, or you are supposed to respond in this way. God has told me X. Now, let's pause here. These are very, very weighty words. Let's say it that way. These are weighty words that you need to be careful with. Has God told you Maybe, maybe, but look at what Jesus says in the Gospels. Jesus is going to tell us that every careless word we say will be brought to light. He's going to say things like the Sermon on the Mount, quoting from uh, the Ten Commandments, that you are carrying the Lord's name, 
And so when you say things like, God has told me, or God is leading me to do this, you are signing off with the Lord's name and authority with what you're about to do. Friend, what if it doesn't come true? And you just attach the Lord's name to it. You know what Deuteronomy says about the prophets that say the Lord's name and it does not come true? They're to be stoned to death. So this is just a warning for us. We're not about to pick up stones and if anybody said God's led me this way, we're not going there. This is just to say, be very humble in your approach to what you feel like God is leading you to do. Why? Because he's given us his word. Notice how the angel, what the angel appeals to. What does the angel appeal to? Scripture. The angel tells Joseph, citing Isaiah 7.14, the scriptures you would know, righteous man, the virgin will give birth to a son. And Joseph probably finished it by saying he will be known as mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. The angel appeals to scripture. Friend, you might feel like God is, is leading you in some way, and that's great. But scripture tells us to test these things. Test the spirit. How do we test it? By his word. Be very careful to sign off on God's name. Sign God's name on what you're doing. Your obedience, your obedience is to the revelation of God's written word. To trust in God in faith and to love him. The second point here for us to notice is Joseph's response. He doesn't make a declaration to the people he does what the angel has said. He responds in obedience and continues on with the wedding to Mary. So it's the second point here is that we don't need new revelation. If, the, if you could never confidently say, the Lord has spoken to me or the Lord has led me in this direction, you know what? That's okay. Because he's spoken to us by his word. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. You don't need to seek new revelation. What you need to ask yourself, am I being obedient to the word of God that I have? Am I being obedient to what the Lord has called me to now in this season of life? You know, as a pastor and as a husband and as a father, I really want sometimes for an angel just to like appear and tell me what to do. Right? Don't we all? Like, aren't we all, don't we all get confronted with situations and we're just like, oh, like if I just, Jesus, just help me, just tell me what to do and I do it. Right? We just want him to, to show up in a more tangible way somehow. We want him to reveal himself, but it's in those moments where I, where I start to lean that way or I start to think that way, I have to ask myself, hasn't he already revealed himself to me? By his word? Hasn't he already, by his word, shown me how a pastor of a church should behave? How a husband should lead his family? How a father should love his children? Are you listening to the word that we have? You see, we can take the story of Joseph, and we have something very similar. The angel showed up to Joseph in a dream. That's awesome. That's a cool story. But the angel quoted scripture and confirmed what Joseph had seen. For us, 
We don't need an angel. He gives us his spirit, and he gives us his word. Be obedient to his word. And I think this is where the Christmas story should meet us and comfort us to a degree. Because life is difficult. Life is hard. And if you think about it, like Joseph and Mary, their role, pretty important. Like it's a high task that they have to take care of the Son of God. You would think if the Lord is going to like give an extra angel to come to the aid, like help you out, figure this out, it'd be Mary and Joseph. We don't want them to mess this up. But he doesn't. He lets the Lord in his sovereignty and his divine wisdom and goodness, he lets Joseph deal with the pain and the hurt of hearing that his wife is pregnant and knowing that it's not him. Because when we are dealt the hand of suffering or pain, we drift somewhere. We drift somewhere. Is it to his word? It says that when Joseph considered these things, it's like he went home and he prayed about it. It's like he sought the Lord when he considered these things. And this is where the Christmas story comforts us. We don't need to elevate our dreams to some weird level. Uh, we can have honest conversations about our lives, and we can trust that Jesus' word is enough. Through real hurt, real pain, real questions, real sin, with real consequences, the invitation of the Christmas story is to see real people in real situations with real hurt and to see that Scripture is enough, it's sufficient. Lord's Word's enough. And this is where we could end the story. Like we could end the sermon here, Joseph, a righteous, honorable man who went through difficulties and challenges and came out the other side because he trusted the Scriptures and what some angel unnamed had to say in a dream. But is Joseph the one that we should elevate here? Is Joseph the one that we're meant to look at and treasure? No. It's Jesus. So how is Jesus revealed to us in his goodness in this passage? It's in verse 23 where the angel quotes Isaiah 7:14 that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we have been steeped in our churches in, um, I want to put this in a nice way, uh, but in a, a bit of a cultural Christianity. So we've, we have had the American version of church, and meaning that we didn't grow up in a steeped Jewish home where we have practiced the festivals and we have followed the religious calendar. We haven't practiced Shabbat. You know, we, we aren't deeply entrenched in that form of it. You, you catch what I'm saying? Okay. So for a Jewish man to hear this, that God will become a son, he would say, no way. This, this is not how it happens. You see, Eastern religions believe and this isn't Jewish religion, but Eastern religions believe God was an impersonal force permeating all things. Western religion at the time believed in multiple non-omnipotent personal deities, so think uh, like the Greeks in Zeus. But Jewish uh, people, they believe differently. They believe that God is both personal and infinite, who is not a being within the universe, but instead its entire existence is grounded in him, yet he's also infinitely, transcendently above it. You see, Jews, they would not even 
pronounce the name Yahweh. They wouldn't even spell it. So to think that God, Yahweh, is going to become a human and a boy and a woman's going to give birth to him, that is not, that's not going to happen. But here in the Gospel, Matthew, we have Jesus, and by his life, claims, and resurrection, has convinced his closest Jewish followers that he wasn't just a prophet, but he's God himself in the flesh. And here's Matthew trying to show us that he is. See, Jesus goes around doing things that only God had the authority to do, to forgive sin. Jesus says in the Gospels that he's going to come back and judge the earth. Who has that power and authority? Jesus claims to have mutual and equal knowledge with God the Father. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am. Big words, Jesus. J.I. Packer puts it this way. I think I have the quote on the screen, yeah. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on the earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Now, people have a lot of problems with Jesus, and they have a lot of problems with the gospel accounts. Maybe they don't add up for them in their minds, and they'll say things like, I can't trust in miracles. I can't believe that he walked on water or raised the dead. They might say something like, I can believe that he might thought he could forgive sins, and he would say that, but I can't believe that one man's death would wipe out the sins of billions of people. It seems impossible. But here's J.I. Packer again. He says this, it is from misbelief or at least inadequate belief about the incarnation that difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring. But once incarnation is grasped as reality, these other difficulties dissolve. If there is a God and he has become human, why would one find it incredulous that he would do miracles, that he would atone for sin? or that he would rise from the dead. Here's the thing, here's the one thing that I want you to remember today. Jesus, he's either God or he isn't, which makes him either absolutely crazy or infinitely wonderful. Jesus is either absolutely crazy or he's infinitely wonderful. How? First, for God to be with us, for God to become man, it means this, that we have infinite comfort in suffering. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. I, I think I left this off. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, it says this. For this reason, he had to be made like them, man, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those when, we, when those who are being tempted. 
Because God became flesh, we have infinite comfort in our suffering. God doesn't stand off to the side and say, "Ah, I'm sorry it went that way. God enters into the world and he does something about it. I was reading, I forget what I was reading, so this is going to be a paraphrase, but it was online somewhere about someone that was saying they can't believe that God is good because if God is good, why, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Scripture doesn't clearly just say there's evil and suffering in the world because X, Y, Z, because of sin, because of how we've separated. But you know what Scripture does show us? It shows us that God does something about it, that Jesus enters into our suffering and becomes like one of us. The anxiety that you feel about the future, not knowing what to do, your, your stomachs in knots, see Jesus in the garden alone, his friends asleep, crying out to the Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus, hungry, Jesus, out in the elements, Jesus being attacked, Jesus being accused, he's been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin. The second thing for God to be with us means the courage to take the world's disdain. Joseph is comforted with the scripture that God is with us. The virgin will give birth to a son. But you know, all of Joseph's friends, uh, they have to be saying, oh, well, yep, now you're crazy too. You see, to take the, the courage to take the world's disdain means that you can stay in a marriage that isn't working because the Lord has called you to it. Now, I'm not advocating for staying in abuse. It's a different conversation What I'm saying is you can stay in a marriage and go for it, even when all of your friends are saying, man, it's crazy. Just go out and be happy. You can lay down your life in that way because the Lord has become flesh. You can forgive people who have been unforgivable. Why? Because Jesus has. Jesus, who has all the authority and all the right to be angry at whoever he pleases, As he's being nailed to the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As he spit in his face, as they beat him, I've never been hurt that bad. Jesus gives us the power to forgive the unforgivable. Jesus gives us the power to be generous when it seems unreasonable. And Jesus gives us the power to have faith even in uncertainty. The third thing is that the incarnation does, it gives us the courage to deny yourself. In our society, the sacred law is to be true to yourself. Find your truth and live it. But the Christian life is whoever wants to gain their life will lose it. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and follow me. The incarnation gives us the courage to deny ourselves. Philippians, Paul puts it this way, chapter 2. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness. If Jesus is willing to do this, why aren't we? Not that we can come off of our throne in heaven, but what I mean is, why can't we forgive those who have harmed us in some way? Why can't we extend love and generosity to its fullest? The last thing uh, that the incarnation does is this, the courage to admit you're a sinner. What does the angel tell Joseph? That he will save his people from their sins. This is Jesus' entire mission on earth, to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you are here this morning, if you've tuned me out just a little bit, or if you're going to fried fish in your mind, just come back with me in this moment. Do you have the courage to admit that you're a sinner? Are you willing to say, I am a moral failure, I have failed God with all that I am, I don't love my neighbor as myself, I am selfish, I'm prideful, I am guilty. The incarnation is infinitely wonderful because Jesus has come to give his life as a ransom for sinners. All you have to do is freely come to him. Do you have the courage to admit that you don't have your life together and that you need a savior in Jesus? We sang it this morning. Mild he lay his glory by. What does that mean? It means that he did it willingly, voluntarily, lovingly. No one forced him to do it. It wasn't just his duty. Jesus comes and faces unimaginable pain, suffering, and death. Why? Because he loves you. Jesus loves you. And we know this by seeing the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, God becoming flesh. So let's close in in these two ways. We have seen the righteousness and the obedience of Joseph. But consider the obedience of Joseph, because yes, an angel did come to him, but yes, he still had to uh, work through probably shame and all of this. But notice this, in Matthew chapter 2, another angel appears to Joseph in a dream and telling him to take his family to flee to Egypt. Now, Bethlehem to Egypt, that's about 690 kilometers away. That's about 430 miles or Pineville to San Antonio. Seven-hour car drive, it's about a year trip on foot. So I would wake up that dream and be like, yeah, that was definitely the hummus that night. I don't need to meander all the way to Egypt. But what Joseph does, by foot, with a newborn, scavenging for food, leaving behind a home, a town, a trade, enduring weather, robbers, animals, he takes his family and he does it. He's obedient to the word. He does it. The scriptures call us to be obedient in a similar way. He calls us to be obedient And faith in the Lord Jesus and trust that he's working it all out for our good. Faith that God loves you by looking at Jesus and trusting that his love is enough for us. Alpine, we do not need an angel to tell us what to do. We have his word. We have his word. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was a carpenter? Maybe God thought that that was like the golden trade, like that was like the trade to have. Sorry, Big D, plumbing. Carpenter's the one. I don't think that's it, though. 
I don't think that like this is the special skill. I think there's a much more reasonable answer why Jesus was a carpenter, because his dad was one. And Jesus grew up watching his father, being trained by his father, being led by his father. Dad's in the room, grandparents in the room. How are you leading your family? Are you leading them in obedience? Are you passing on your faith in the true Son of God to your family? Are you showing them what it means to be a righteous man by your gentleness, like Joseph? The scriptures have called us to be obedient. And to be obedient, we follow after Jesus and his word. And lastly, for God to be with us means that Jesus is infinitely wonderful. He, we have infinite comfort in our suffering, courage to face the world's disdain, courage to deny ourselves, and courage to admit that you're a sinner.